Now you can find, listen and subscribe to Chilling with Jens and the local Danfoss Climate Solution podcast in your RevTools app. Download it from danfoss.com. Service and support. Downloads. Hi, I'm Jens Andersen from Danfoss Climate Solutions. Thank you for listening in on this month's topic, which is typical installation mistakes. And in a moment, the three guests will present themselves. But before we dive into this, please remember to feed back to us about your ideas, suggestions on the following email address. Chilling with Jens, in one word, at danfoss.com. We the theme of today is typical installation, uh, installation mistakes. It's probably something that most service and maintenance engineers would not do. But before we get starting, maybe we should just do as we always do, have a presentation of all our uh, guests, the three wise men, uh, mm-hmm. with um, Jamie, John and York. And maybe you, uh, Jamie, will uh, start with a very short introduction of yourself, please. All right. I'm a, uh, what do I do? Uh, I'm a sales engineer or engineering sales, jack of all trades, kind of with uh, Dan Poss. Uh, I work in the indirect channel, which probably opens up a lot of, the, of opportunity for me to do different things. But we sell to basically wholesalers and small OEMs. I do a lot of work with contractors. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. Previously, I was in training. Before that, I was in field engineering and uh, even did a stint of marketing there for a while. So I've been doing this since 1989, and I've been with Dan Foss since 1999. So what is that? 23 years is coming up on. So it's been a bit. Yeah, it has. John, how about you? We've heard you a couple of times. Could you just give you uh, us a... Uh, Extremely brief uh, intro again, again. Certainly, and um, yep. Hi, everybody. John Broughton. Um, been in the industry since I was 16. I won't tell you how old I am now, but I'm uh, in my 50s, somewhere around there, so uh, quite a few years. Um, been with Danfoss for quite a number of years and work in the global application team. So, uh, yeah, a bit like Jamie, get to be um, see many things, um, you know, different installations and all that sort of thing. So we'll have a good talk today. Oh, yeah. Great, great. Thank you. Uh, Jörg, how about you? Yes, hello, everybody from my side as well. I'm Jörg, and as John, I'm in the global applications team. And if you want to ask how long, well, let's put it like that. I've seen a few summers in this industry as well. Well, if you're in Denmark, aren't you? So, like, it doesn't like you guys are hoping summer falls on a weekend or something, aren't you? Well, I'm I'm, I'm located in Germany, so we we oh, have Germany, a two sorry, day, okay. we have we have a two to three day summer, not only a, a one and a half day as in Denmark. So, wait a minute. Yeah, I I I think I missed the summer last year, so I I just hope I'll 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 see it pass. But Jens, the... who are you? I mean, we hear you talk talking. Don't you want to introduce oh, yeah, yourself? Sorry. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Sorry about that. I'm Jens Sanderson. I've been with Danfoss for uh, yeah, almost a century, no, half a century at least. <laughs> um, since I was, what was that, 20? And uh, I'm not going to tell you, just like John, how old I am now, but I've been around for 44 years now uh, at Danfoss, been working in several different uh, positions and uh, uh, 
regions of Danfoss. So um, I've seen a lot. So I've worked a lot. Um, and now I'm sort of doing all these uh, funny things like talking to you guys. Uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, today's theme again is uh, typical installation mistakes. And first question is, of course, how on earth are all these installation mistakes uh, appearing? What is the reason? Is it, is it because of, of, of bad skills or is it because the guy doing the installation is actually getting bad instructions? Mm. Gee, that sounds like a John question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, <clears throat> Jamie. Um, I, I would say there's a lot of issues, and I'll think back to sort of my uh, apprenticeship days. Um, I won't mention names or companies or anything like that to keep it nice and simple. But I think what, what generally happened, and some of it was in, in my case a little bit, you get taught what the engineer that you're working with knows. Um, and then as you progress through the industry, you then teach people what you know, unless you're taught differently. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that. I think there's a huge amount of time pressure in today, a lot more than it was uh, in, in my day for sure. Um, and I think also the equipment that we we use and, and we, we work on, um, you know, things like the electronic controllers, for example, everything's getting more, I won't say complicated, but different. And mm -hmm. if you can imagine being an engineer, you know, one day you're working on uh, this type of equipment, next day you're working on this type of equipment, next day it's another type of equipment. That that must be a, a big, big challenge as well, for sure. Agree to that. Yes, it is. It is a shift in equipment and products that sometimes require new skills as well and a new approach you might have been using a compressor in a certain way. Let's say that was a semi-hermetic compressor all the time. You've been working with semi-hermetics for the life, last 10 years. And now you start to work with a different company maybe, and you start to work with small hermetic recipes. Well, mm -hmm. that's that's a different approach. That's really something else. It is a compressor. Yes, but um, all of a sudden there are more things to take into consideration. Some of them are easier. Some of them are maybe uh, a bit more more sophisticated. That that you need to look into some new stuff. That's actually a funny point because that almost outlines my career because I started on even bigger stuff. You know, centrifugal AC compressors. You know, two, three, four hundred, eight hundred ton systems where you go to take them apart and you need like an A-frame and an overhead crane and everything to lift the parts off. And I went from there into commercial refrigeration where, you know, there's this black thing the size of a softball. It's called a compressor, right? You know, and, you, and you're and you crawling around in there trying to get room to find something. And everybody's worried about, you know, heat rejection and not having enough room. So you're going from a huge, you know, uh, mechanical room to inside this this little unit, you know. And so... I find the smaller stuff even more challenging than than the larger stuff because um, to me it's not necessarily more complicated, but it's just a whole different approach to, to to coming in. Suddenly, refrigerant charges become critical as far as how much you're putting in, and 
you know, airflow and breathing room and all these things become critical. So it's, you're right. There's, there's a huge change from one side of the uh, industry to the other, as far as uh, the expectations on people who are working in it. So, um, but one thing comes to mind and I want to hear you guys uh, um, because this is definitely a North American um, viewpoint. I want to hear your, your, uh, your, your response from the other side of the pond, but in, about the mid 2000s, we brought in this thing called SEER 13, which is seasonal energy efficiency ratio. And it went from SEER 10 to SEER 13. And one of the big options available that was both an option that was also being pushed by manufacturers um, was the adoption of a TXV, thermal expansion valve. So you took out this piston, right, which is a simple metering device. And how much that flows through the piston is based on two things, right? The size of the orifice, the hole, and how much pressure differential there's across it. So there's absolutely no control as far as how much refrigerant flows through it. Then you're going to a TXV. And a thermal expansion valve, as you know, you charge a system differently. How you approach your charge is different. How it operates is different. You know, how it reacts to changes in head pressure and everything is completely backwards to the way a piston works. And to make matters a lot worse or more challenging, the majority of these TXVs had no superheat adjustment on them. They were fixed superheat. So a lot of people who had been working, as you guys say, for 15, 20 years, and the majority of systems they see are pistons, they might see a few TXVs, you know, they got some superheat adjustment on them. They were suddenly thrown into this whole world where everything they were dealing with had TXVs in them and new refrigerants and things like that. And there was a lot of pushback. And I think industry itself, including Danfoss, we were surprised how much of a learning curve was required just to deal with this change. We underestimated it, you know, things like training and everything else. So we saw a large pile of, you know, warranties coming back on TXVs where there was nothing wrong with them and, you know, compressor failures and all kinds of complaints and issues. So, you know, I think this is really a big change that kind of exemplifies some of the things that we can find challenging in the industry. Yeah, um, I would say for for Europe, there were not that many of these metering devices you've been talking about. They existed, yeah, but there were more TXVs um, anyway. However, mm -hmm. there was a simple, uh, not a simple, a similar step for many, many systems, and that was echo design, European guidelines, echo design guidelines, which asked for higher energy efficiencies. Mm -hmm. And for quite a lot of systems which used capillary tubes, ah. which is a pretty simple metering device as well, all of a sudden you went to TXVs here from a capillary tube. But it's a similar step. All of a sudden you have an active valve there which is not too hard to handle, but uh, you need to, to consider a few things. It gives you many advantages, but you have to have a few things in mind as well. Agree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I can give a little personal story um, on expansion valves and superheat. I started life in the industry at 16, and I, it wasn't until I was in my, let's say, mid-20s that I actually yeah was explained and shown about superheat and how to actually adjust a valve so i went through my entire uh, apprenticeship and we never set the superheat on a valve 
We just took it out of the box, factory set, installed it, ran it. Mm-hmm. Um, and e- even today, um, I-, I think there's still a huge misconception about things like uh, expansion valves and being factory set. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you see that mostly, though? Because, you know, guys like me that, you know, kind of rode through that whole TXV thing, we kind of basically stress, look, don't adjust the CXV superheat unless you've eliminated every other kind of possible problem. It shouldn't be the first thing you try and twiddle with because, again, the people who are working on a system are under time pressure. They're looking for a solution and something that can adjust that seems central to a system like a TXV, right? Um, you want to adjust it to try and make the system work better or, or solve a problem. But a lot of times, as we find, it's not the superheat's TXV setting that is the issue. It's a you know fault somewhere else in the system, but unfortunately, it requires more digging, right? More elimination of possible choices to get to you know the root cause. I totally agree again. Um, and here, in my opinion, you need to differentiate. One is: is the system working, and is it working okay? And that's how it is with most of the system, really the vast, vast majority with the superheat setting as it comes from the factory, at least if you have a valve that has a reasonably good superheat setting. And then um, the valves are set in a way that they work for almost all systems and the system is safe. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one point. So if you have something that does not work, first of all, look at other things, agree to that. The other point is, and that's where the echo design guidelines came in, you have a system running, it's running safe, but there is margin for higher energy efficiency. And that's where you look at the superheat setting and check whether you can improve the efficiency of the system with the right superheat setting. Mm-hmm. But only then, only when the system is running and is working fine. It's not to to uh, kind of avoid a failure to play around with the superheat setting. If there is a failure somewhere else, you cannot stop that with the superheat setting. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that that's very true, Jorg. And I think one thing that I've learned over the years, particularly in Danfoss, is that if if you are going to adjust anything, um, you know, it, it's tiny steps at a time and things like that for the superheat adjustment for a TXV are incredibly important. Um, one thing I do is take around some parts of a TXV that it's the component parts that you can actually assemble. It's not brazed up or welded mm-hmm. up. Um, and then you can give it to the engineers when you're doing a training session and put the push plate in and the spring and, and let them play with the adjuster. And then they actually see how much a quarter of a turn or half a turn makes to the push plate underneath the diaphragm. And that gives them a realization of, yeah, okay, it's small steps. It's not three mm-hmm. turns. Let, let's let's put it three turns. Oh wow! And, and then you have a you know huge issue on but site. John, and then, yep, John, yeah, yeah. Sorry for interrupting you because I think you've 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 actually addressed a, a quite important point here. We're talking about development of the of the the business or the the way we work, et cetera, et cetera. So. What I'm trying to say here, John, is, and and the rest of you guys actually, shouldn't it be a part of our, you could say, daily life to get that additional training on new components, new techniques, new uh, 
new refrigerants even, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, so that it would be a part of our daily life to avoid all these uh, typical installation mistakes. How do you see that? Mm, that's a, a, a very good topic. And I think as we've already um, spoken about, everybody's under time pressure these days. And I know speaking to schools, schools and colleges, at least in, in the UK, trying to get the engineers to, um, let's say, attend the uh, <laughs> yeah. training sessions. Again, that is a huge time pressure for the engineer and also for the company that they work for. Um, I, I don't know the solution to it, for sure. Um, but I know when you speak to engineers out on the road, it's like, yeah, I really want to attend college, really want to do this uh, qualification, but I really struggle on the time pressure to actually be there and, and learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do we do that in in different ways? Yes, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's definitely true. That's why, you know, I, I noticed it, it all depends too a lot of times on um, how you bring the content to market, but you also have to have people understand that it's important to learn these things. And, you know, you're competing with other people to, you know, ed- believe it or not, educate, you know, or, or bring knowledge to these technicians. And a lot of times, um, you just don't, they don't have the time to sit and go through all of these things. You know, if you look at a manufacturer, you know, who's basically making a a unit, let's say a residential unit or a mini split system or one of these types of systems, their big selling point is, is it's easy to install. It's easy to set up. It doesn't require a lot of time. It saves time. You know, it puts money in your pocket. These are the kinds of things that really are what, um, people you know make unit manufacturers are trying to, to to push for and it's it's absolutely viable 100 percent. but to get into the individual components and identify them and say this is important to understand this is what it does and this is how you deal with it i think that's a whole other level because you know that that falls kind of towards on um, people like dan Foss who manufacture these components right and try and stress you know how they perform and how to get the best out of them and so i think you have multiple different levels and a lot of times i find if i'm competing against a uh, you know for training time for people and you want to talk about a txv or even electronic expansion valve they're going to go to the system training or they're going to be more interested in the system training than they are in the individual component training it's not a huge deal but i do see that sometimes um you know, when you're trying to attract a crowd at a training, you know, I might have a dozen people, the guy that's talking about how to install, you know, a unit is getting, you know, from the manufacturer is getting three, four times the number of people in their class. It's just the the demand for it, right, of what it is. I may be a bit off topic, but anyways, that's, there you go. Uh, there, there are, in my opinion, even different levels of, of required training and Mm -hmm. you can clearly see that on the different level of what goes wrong and if we stay with a thermostatic expansion valve one example or let's say three examples for higher medium and and lower level let's say a higher level is you overheat the valve whilst (laughs) you solder it into the system you might not see that from the outside, but you have damaged the valve somewhat on the membrane on, on the inside, and then the regulation is no longer that good. 
a medium level is you put the orifice into the valve and that's all stuff that we have seen. You put the orifice into the valve and then you, you close the nut on that orifice with a torque that is 20 times higher than it should be. And you really deform the housing of the valve and you deform the orifice inside, it stops working. And then the very simple thing, and we've seen that as well, uh, the, the capillary tube on the expansion valve was not long enough and somebody had the idea to cut it, to put a bit of electric wire in oh, between no. that using two terminal boxes. And then of course the, work, the valve did no longer work. But you see all that, right? That, that stuff that, that happens. And that's why it's necessary to, to really start explaining what works how. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, there's there's a lot of different things. So let's just let's 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 circle back here uh, and talk about, um, you know, typical installation mistakes and, and, and sum it up. And we were talking about this earlier. I think it comes down to airflow and then, you know, airflow again and then, you know, refrigerant charge and refrigerant charge again and, you know, Everything after that, a lot of times, piping and everything else, I'm not going to say it's are less, but if you look at the statistics, and here in North America, you know, two-thirds of systems are drastically overcharged, and two-thirds of systems or more have airflow so poor that it affects their system performance. We, we had a gentleman that worked with us, I worked with for a while, and he was from, a, you know, an air institute that basically did uh, air balancing and air checks and pressure tests and everything else. And he told me something like the average CFM from their database, they took thousands and thousands of readings and they put them together. And the average CFM was somewhere in the mid 200s for per ton, you know, and 400 feet per CFM per ton is kind of the range you want to be in plus or minus. But this was like something like, you know, 60 or 65% of that value. And it wasn't designed that way. It was just the way the system was set up that it just restricted airflow so poorly that you know the system was was struggling to, to to perform and so let's think about that you buy a high efficiency system you pay the extra money for it, and you pretty much lose all those all that value right just because you're not going to realize it and i think that's really the big challenge here you know how do these types of mistakes happen and why you know and we kind of as john mentioned we touched on some of these things uh, uh, on our last podcast but i think that's really what it comes down to how come these systems are so overcharged well you guys want to take a stab at it i i got a few ideas <laughs> uh, yeah i mean there's there's that favorite topic uh, jamie of well it's got a full sight glass um, yeah. if it's not got a full sight glass and, and this is a, a quite on topic at the moment if the system didn't have a sight glass how would you know that system is correctly charged? I won't mm -hmm. say fully charged, I'll say correctly charged. Mm -hmm. And you ask, you know, six people, you get six totally different answers. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a discussion in, internally within Danfoss. So you go out to the engineers on site and ask them exactly the same questions, you get another six different answers. Mm -hmm. So I think charge is a very important one. Um, you know, is, is it purely based on the size of the receiver? Um, well, yes and no, um, but the system has to work correctly. And how do you know the system is working correctly? Yeah, and yeah, go ahead, Jordan. 
Anybody else want to stab at it? <laughs> at least one other person. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, from the way I look at the system is the evaporating temperature, the condensing temperature, the superheat on the evaporator, the subcooling in the condenser. Um, have you got any phase change in the liquid line? How do you know that you've got a full column of liquid ahead of the expansion valve? All these sort of basic um, checks that you go through. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, I think this comes down to this time pressure as well. It's like, have you physically got time to commission the system and check everything is as it should be before you're on to the next job and, and you know, the next job? Uh, so I think that there's some of that as well. But Jamie, always uh, interested to hear your your thoughts from the other side of the uh, pond, as you say. Yeah, I mean, he, over here we have a lot of what we call, you know, split systems with a remote condenser outside and you have your evaporator loaded in, inside with, of course, located inside with, of course, piping connecting in between. And so a lot of times the systems kind of, you know, come with line sets and whatnot. You put it together and um, supposedly, you know, when you leave, you're supposed to have enough charge in it. And a lot of times you can say sometimes you'll get a call where you know I, I don't have stable superheat on my uh, out on my unit. Generally speaking, that tells you you're undercharged. If everything else is working correctly, it's a new install. Um, you know, read the manufacturer's literature. You know, tell, put put in the correct amount of charge and charge according to subcooling. So if you look at an outdoor unit. It will have a list of values for, uh, you know, target pressure given the outside temperature and the inside wet bulb, not dry bulb, inside wet bulb, and you'll have a target subcooling. So let's say it is, you know, 30 degrees Celsius outside, you know, 88 degrees Fahrenheit, whatever. You know, if you have a SEER, basic SEER 13 unit, you know, you'll, ha you'll have a given target pressure outside with a given load inside, your load being determined by the wet bulb. And then you'll be given a range of subcooling that you're looking for, you know, within one or two degrees. So the idea is you charge the system and you have a, you know, subcooling value that's good to go. Okay, well, that's great. But your indoor load is predetermined by how much airflow you have. And if your airflow sucks, right, then, your indoor load is thrown out the window with has due to something completely unrelated to the system you're installing. It has to do with the ductwork that's, you know, buried inside the walls. So now you've got a completely different set of variables that aren't included in a very simple charging chart. If you don't have a load, you're not going to have a whole lot of heat on the outside unit. So what's it going to happen? You're going to put more and more and more refrigerant in there, right, to bring that pressure up. And you'll end up with a you know, overcharge type situation. The other point is, what if the person doesn't really a have time to spend doing this, or b understand wet bulb? You know, we all understand that. You know, if your indoor temperature is 22 degrees, I feel comfortable. But that's only the dry bulb that ignores half the energy in the air, right? Mm -hmm. Literally. So this wet bulb part of it is a big deal, right? So go inside, figure out your wet bulb. If everything else is fine. You know, your 10 degrees of subcooling for your target is good. The systems are designed to operate with a window of charge that, you know, gives you some elbow room. But again, you got to determine what if your airflow isn't good inside? What happens then? 
You know, now you need a person to go in and determine airflow and determining airflow is a whole other set of skills. So really, I hate to say it, but a lot of times we end up with a situation where the person just adds refrigerant until they see the value of subcooling if they're lucky and away they go because you know something, they got something else to do, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, and so it, we got to be careful here when we're looking at that because there's a lot of variables. It'd be a perfect world if we could just take a system, everything was pre-charged, we just bolted it to the wall and, and, and drove away, but I think we're a long ways from that, you know, being a reality. Mm. Oh, and John, okay. you deal a lot with walk-in boxes and refrigeration and things like that. Um, do you think there's it's 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 easier to control things like charge compared to air conditioning, or do you think it's harder? Or are they just different? I, I think they're just different, Jamie. I mean. Again, we've spoken about this inside within Danfoss. We've got some useful tools within like the Cool Selector software where you can mm -hmm. get a rough approximation of your pressures and temperatures around a system. But mm -hmm. your 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 average contractor in the field won't use Cool Selector. And the, there's no indication on the unit of um, you know, what your pressures, temperatures should be, whether you've got uh, you know, one one k subcooling, five k subcooling, ten k subcooling, on on the condenser. So I think that comes down to what we said before: is it? It's that you do what you were taught by the person who trained you, mm -hmm. whether that is the 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 school, you know, the the college, or the engineer that you served your apprenticeship with, who mm -hmm. taught you what what to do. Um, so I, I never worked on, uh, you know. AC systems like you have in the States in the sort of typical house. Um, but they've both got their own challenges, I guess, and it's understanding what goes on. You know, typical scenario for a cold room is that they'll they'll charge it when the room's not down to temperature, obviously, because oh, it, it needs yeah. to run. Mm -hmm. um, so the room might be at, you know, plus 10, plus 15, and it guzzles liquid because you've got that massive heat load. Yeah, then the evaporator is actually down, full of stuff, full of refrigerant. Yeah. Yeah, and then when it's actually down to temperature, you're a bit over a bit uh, overcharged. Mm -hmm. um, things like that, you know. There was always the joke of putting the apprentice in the cold room to, uh, you know, get some heat load. In there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and I understand that. It. Uh, you're right about the fact that there isn't. I think a lot of. I mean, I've actually read instructions for setting up systems in uh, in 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 walking boxes and that and you're right a lot of times it requires i think what we call field wisdom in that you know based on your history and you've installed you know dozens or hundreds of these systems you know and if you're aware of the problems that have occurred on your installs and others you know you take that knowledge forward and you said okay this has worked in the past this is what we need to do because i don't think there is that hand holding or that you know that perfect recipe to follow to go through you have to understand how the system works and given the set of conditions you have to understand what symptoms am i going to see you know and and i, I mean i do a, i do a class called interpreting system symptoms and that's really what it is how should the system be working if everything was right or good enough and then you compare that with what you see and the difference should tell you what the issues are. And then, you know, of course, we dive deeper into solving those. But really, if you don't understand how a system should be operating when it's given this temperature and wet bulb indoors and, you know, this condition around where the condenser is, 
it's pretty hard to tell when something's not working if you don't know how it should be working or performing. Both of you mentioned something that, that I like pretty much. And as a summary, I would say the more you go away from systems that you know, I mean type of systems, no matter whether you have been working with air conditioning systems all the time, residential air conditioning systems or walk-ins slash code mm -hmm. rooms. And now you go to another system, a chiller, let's say, or mm -hmm. a blast freezer or whatever, a medical uh, cooling device. The more you go away from the type of system that you know, the more you need to ask yourself every step you do, is that something I could do as I'm used to do it? Or should I think again, what am I doing here and why am I doing that? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a good approach. The more you go away from what you know, ask yourself, is is it okay what, what I'm used to do? Yeah. And that's true, I think, as an overall lesson to take, you know, to, to carry on this, because you're right. As uh, if you work in an industry, and I know a lot of the guys that I know that work in the field on the tools, they see a lot of different things. And they may be going back and forth between, you know, rooftop units one day to refrigeration the next. And they really have to understand the core principles. You know, what are what are the the common themes here that are behind all of these systems? And then once I know that, what are the variables? You know, what are the things that are different that I need to take into account? Okay, and you're absolutely right. So, you know, that that that's an interesting point. Um, what was Jens? I totally forgot what the, what the other points were. Maybe we should have written them down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we've charged. We've definitely talked about that, but we also talked about the the, uh, the yeah, the airflow. We also mentioned that, but uh, in general, I think uh, there was a, a kind of a heading that said something about design issues and uh, how actually to put the design into practical life, so to speak. The, 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 the difference between the design and the what came out of it, essentially, the, the result of it. I think that was something we, we mentioned before we, we started the recording. Yeah, I don't want to do it again, John, but I, I seem to remember you had a really good uh, presentation topic on this when you talk about taking different components and putting them together. Because, you know, you have a design, which is, okay, you know, we're going to assemble a, a walk-in box and it's supposed to, you know, achieve this, you know, it's going to cool this much product, you know, in this period of time, given these conditions. But then you got to put everything together and and make it work. And I think, you know, unlike a system that's already pre-built, I think, you know, there's a there, there's a lot of different variables that you can take into account and you can take a, a basic plan. But what you end up with is completely different than than than, you know, maybe what you intended or or wanted. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's probably uh, quite a good topic and, and quite a lengthy one, Jamie, to be honest. Um, if we generally sort of talk, I mean, what is the the most common design issue that we come across? And for me, I would say the system itself is oversized in capacity. 
for what mm-hmm. it's actually you know made to do and i guess that there's there's many reasons for that but generally it is somebody adds 10 percent as a safety factor and then somebody else along the the chain of uh you know sizing the equipment adds another 10 percent for a safety factor um and, and then it, it gets to this situation where it's way too big for for, for what it's actually trying to do and that's um, on the hottest day of the year with it's you know five to five degrees celsius cooler outside you've got 15 20 <laughs> percent more capacity on top of that yeah, yeah. no 100 percent. yeah yeah, yeah that's 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 one point quite often what you see as well is that somebody builds a system whether this is an air conditioning system or you find that in commercial refrigeration supermarkets or whatever as well um, and the system is built in a way that it can handle a capacity for an extension of the supermarket or an expen- extension of the office building. Yeah, but for the point, first actually. three years, yeah. there is no extension. And maybe later on, nobody builds that extension. So it, it was made to handle 60 kilowatts, for example, but the real cooling load is only 25. That's an All excellent the time. point, actually. Yeah. Not more. It, it never gets above that, and and then you have all these on and off conditions and so on. Yeah, you're right because it's it's funny because with the recent COVID and the and the lack of of people in the office, you go in there and the office staff is about one third of what it normally is. Now, people themselves may not give off a lot of heat, but they're running equipment. You got a lot of sensible load from the computers that aren't running. Right. You've got, uh, uh, you know, all the faxing and copy machines and coffee makers and all the other stuff that basically adds heat to a, a, a place. A lot of times your blinds are all closed. Right. So the interesting thing is you walk through there and a lot of people are complaining about hot and cold zones. They go into one area and, you know, the place is, you know, 16 degrees Celsius in there. Right. You know, instead of 22. And then you go into the next area and it's, you know, 25 degrees Celsius in there. You know, you you probably get a centimeter taller and shorter just because of the temperature change, right? <laughs> it's like it's crazy. So, yeah, absolutely, I, I do. And, and so you get a ton of comfort comfort complaints all the time. And uh, yeah, it's it that that's a well, that's a good point. When you design like an office space, I've often wondered, and you calculate the AC and things like that for these spaces. They, I mean, is there, how much room is there for change in load? I mean, you know, I think that's, I mean, I know it's kind of beyond what we're talking about here now, but I think a lot of times when mechanics get calls for, you know, comfort cooling issues, I often wonder, is it actually a a problem with the system itself? Or is it as, you know, you guys say, it's just oversized and you're stuck with what you got. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it purely comes down to that that uh, design thing, Jamie. To be honest, I mean we see it in commercial fridge when I'll, I'll go to a site and the equipment they've got in is is fine for let's say a typical cold room, but then you might find out well actually it's not a cold room; it's a blast chiller. Yeah, yeah, okay, um, yeah, exactly. So you, I think you you can get the sort of two extremes of. It's a little bit oversized, a little bit undersized. Maybe the control strategy is not quite right. Or you can get the other end of the spectrum where it is, you know, definitely not in any way, shape or form, the right equipment, the right control strategy for the application that it's actually being installed on. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and that comes down to yeah, many things, I guess, but lack of communication, lack of understanding, or the end user simply deciding, well, I've got a cold room, I'm going to use it like X, Y, and Z instead mm-hmm. of what it was actually designed for in, in the first place. Yeah. So looking from a component standpoint, then, you know, you could blame a component or you could look for something wrong with the component. But in the end, you know, we often tell people, you know, one of my one of my lessons that I want people to take away with is when you start at a job site and you a lot of times what we do have, we have service sheets that you go through and they have a checklist of things. And one of the things a lot of these service sheets, the checklist looks at is, is the equipment and the components matched? In other words, is your evaporator the right one for the compressor? You know, yes, you know, you want to make sure that whatever compressor you put in there is the correct one, but is the system the correct one to begin with? Now, you know, that's great, but if you're a technician and it's not the right equipment to begin with, what are you going to do about it? Mm. You know, mm. uh, look, dude, like, you know, I can do all I want here, but it's not going to fix your, she's not going to fix your problem, you know? So a lot of times that's, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, we look at is make sure the equipment is the correct one for the job to begin with. And if it's not, then what, you know, I think that's, 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 that's an interesting one because again, you know, I don't know how many times, you know, we've got to a situation where you get a failed compressor and the compressor comes back in and you look at it and it's, burned up but then you know you replace the compressor and we put a data logger on the system you know and the data logger tells you holy smokes man this compressor starts and stops like there's no tomorrow we recommend you put a you know you know minimum run timer on it okay well really what we're talking about is putting bandages on something that you know should never have been a problem to begin with you know putting a data logger is great but we should have just looked at what is the actual load and what is the actual equipment in there? That's really your root cause of problems a lot of times, unless somebody's been monkeying around with a thermostat or something like that. You know, so it, it's kind of an interesting point. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you, that's quite often the case that you try to to solve a problem with, yeah, or you, you try to solve kind of symptoms. You don't go to the root cause. As as you say, you say okay. Let let the compressor stop at least for 15 minutes and let it run for at least 15 minutes. But that is just because that compressor is far 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 too big, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. If you would have used the right compressor, you you don't need that that kind of equipment, which tries to do something that would not be a problem if the equipment would be or the, the compressor selection and and heat exchanger selection would be right mm-hmm. yeah agree you know on the ac side we talk about humidity problems you know tackling humidity tackling humidity well you know when willis carrier originally designed air conditioning you notice he didn't call it air cooling it was air conditioning and the main focus was on dehumidification it was the miraculous ability of this you know evaporator coil to condense moisture out of the air, right? And reduce the humidity. And so, you know, I think a lot of times, if you look at the humidity issues in in buildings, it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're treating the air the wrong way. You know, the designs are completely different. If you take it to a house, right? And if you've got a lot of moisture in your basement, 
the reason it's down there is because it's collecting from the rest of the house and you're not properly removing moisture from the air so you bring in a portable dehumidifier but if your ac system is set up right to tackle humidity you shouldn't have a problem to begin with altogether so you know a lot of times if you're if your system is oversized, your humidity is going to be way higher than it should be, right? If you overcharge a system and, uh, you know, or if, you know, your evaporator is too big, all of these things can cause issues with humidity removal, you know, and so, go ahead. And that's an interesting point, because if, if you go to a walk-in or code room, it can be exactly the opposite. Your evaporator is far too small. You want to have a target temperature of, let's say, six degrees Celsius, but you blow in the air from from your evaporator with minus ten, minus twelve, which nice. is very dry. Then, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, um, after three weeks of storage, you don't have apples anymore, but dried apples, and you don't yeah. have meat anymore, but really that <laughs> dried meat. Jerky, because, yeah, yeah. You have apple raisins, yeah, yeah. <laughs> apple raisins, yeah. Because yeah. You, your your air is just too dry, and that's that's a point. Humidity is quite often forgotten. Sometimes you need it higher in the cold room. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need it lower in in a building comfort cooling. It mm -hmm. it just happens, as you say, that the evaporator condenses humidity out of the air. Use it the right way. Yeah, no, that that that's a very important point, Jörg. Um, and when you mentioned Jamie before about that match between your condensing unit or your compressor and your evaporator, everything has to match. Otherwise, your humidity goes one way or it goes uh, the other way. One of one of the the biggest challenges that I see when I'm around on site is you'll have a fixed speed unit attached to maybe two or three smaller display cases each display case on its own thermostat but no. yet you still got a fixed speed condensing unit so in certain situations it is vastly oversized uh, yeah oh my goodness I, that's to, a disaster man that just makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up just hearing that yep, when you said multiple yep. cases with a fixed speed compressor yep yep so you know and when you speak to people it's like yeah but we've always done it like that well yeah again they don't understand I mean, have you ever been in a supermarket and you walk in there and you're like, man, we don't need display cases. You can just hang the meat up inside the store, right? Because <laughs> I swear it's like 12 degrees in there, right? When you walk in and why is it so cold? Oh, because we don't want any moisture condensing on the floor or the doors because we don't want a lawsuit. Somebody's going to slip and sue us, whatever it happens to be. Okay, well, that's fine. But, you know, do you cool your house to 15 degrees Celsius to try and get rid of the moisture? I mean, that, you know, it's just as absurd of a, of, of a concept as what they're doing. You know, there has to be a better way. And I know we're kind of off topic on this, but um, it, it kind of points out the reality of what a lot of the industry, the, you know, the, the current situation is right now in a lot of places. This is the way it is. If the industry is like a lot of times like this as a cross, and then we want to talk about, you know, application mistakes or installation mistakes right you know i think they're, they're, they're really two different things altogether. and I, I keep trying to come back to the installation side of things and the troubleshooting side of things but for some reason i just keep getting pulled into the the other side for some strange reason that sorry about that yeah i mean that that's a, a good point jamie because 
you, you can have a, a, a well-designed system and a bad installation. Mm-hmm. So it, it's well-designed, but it's been installed badly, so it, it's not going to work properly. Or you can have the other way, like you said, um, a badly designed system that you you try and make to work through the installation and actually, you know, maybe fitting some um, pressure regulating valves, things like that, to try and bring it back on where it should be. So I think there's there's two sides of the same coin almost. Yeah. Um, which, you know, if if I go to site and I look at the installation and it's been my term thrown in from across the road, <laughs> you're, I, I'm, I'm, I'm instantly on the back foot as if to say, well, that's not good. So what else is there? But if yeah, you look at yeah. a site that's been, you know, put in and it looks nice and the pipe works correct and, uh, you know, then you're sort of thinking, OK, they've done a good job. They've, they've, they've thought about it. Now what's the problem? Mm-hmm. And that yeah. generally to me always comes down to the design side, whereas if it's thrown in from across the road, it, it's generally something done with the installation. Um, yeah. And sometimes it can be literally as black and white as that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, that 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 tempts me to a to a question, sort of, you know, we we are we've we've been talking now for uh, quite a while, but um, actually it 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 uh, triggers a, a question. <clears throat> Maybe you could give each of you uh, the worst example that you have ever come across. Oh, the should in, be good. In, Yeah, Jamie, would you go uh, ahead first? All right, I'm gonna. <laughs> One thing sticks in my mind because it was a trip that sounds like a, you know, bad movie, all right, in a lot of different ways. You know, like we we stayed in a really shady hotel. The sales guy I was traveling with got bit by a spider and had to go to the hospital, right? You know, there's just, and it was, there was grass fires going on everywhere. I was a new field engineer. And so I... You know, I showed up, you know, heavy coveralls. I mean, I look like Dave Lennox, man. I'm standing out there, right, you know, and it's like 35 degrees Celsius outside and, you know, 99.8% humidity kind of thing, you know, anyways. So I get to this site and all they tell me is we're trying to get this business and we failed all these compressors. Okay. Uh, Okay, fine. You got anything else more to go on? No, but the sales guy is really nervous. Well, yeah, no kidding, man. I would be too, right? But anyway, so we get there, and of course, there's a competitor compressor running in there just fine, right? Well, you remember those, you know, if you ever took an art class, how you have those, you know, art schemes where, you know, the landscape kind of goes to infinity, you know, and everything goes to a point. Well, if you looked at the liquid line, this is what it looked like because the unit was outside that all the stuff that it was feeding was like, you know, in the infinite distance away and looking at this, you know, five eighths inch liquid line on a 10 horsepower scroll, you know, it was an SM120, you know, I'm thinking, okay, how much refrigerant charge is in this system, right? I looked down, all I could see in the sight glass on this scroll was oil. There was no gap, there was just oil. So the first thing I thought of, okay, well, the first couple of compressors they put in there, you know, the oil just went out and never came back, right? And by the time they got around to putting this compressor in, it had found its way back home and came back. So I went and looking at the drawings, they had all kinds of stuff they had added to this system because this system was supposed to be cooling the customer's office. 
But they had added all kinds of test equipment to it. They had heat reclaim coil. They had added dehumidification coils. They had added so much free internal volume, right, that if all this stuff was running, the load probably would have been close to 20 tons. So everything was mismatched and being pulled back together, and they had this little tiny receiver, right, in the outdoor unit, you know, that might have held maybe 10, 15 pounds of refrigerant if you're lucky. So I said to the one guy, the two guys that were helping me, you know, all right, I'm coming back tomorrow. Get all the refrigerant out of this system. And I want to basically start from scratch. We're going to load the refrigerant back in, right? We're going to see how much we put in. And then we're going to look at what kind of oil charge we need to add in order to, to make it work. You know, and I already asked if they could move the unit closer to the building. They said, no. I'm like, all right, I don't know. Is it like a minefield there or something? I'm not sure why. But anyway, so the next day they assured me all the refrigerant was out of it. Okay, fine. I said, replace the dryer and the sight glass. So the guy puts his torch on the liquid line. No sooner, big rosebud tip, no sooner than a few seconds later, this thing lets go. Well, this 100-foot line set or whatever it was, was full of R22, and it was a hot day, so you know what the pressure was like. The refrigerant hit the guy beside me. Now, you know what that spray-in foam does when it expands? Well, that's what the oil did when it hit this guy. He literally turned into like the Michelin man, like the, the foam just like went right up the this front of this guy, right? I jumped back and tripped over this, you know, little barrier they put up there. And it's, you know, this says men working or whatever. But we lost the entire refrigerant charge out of there. It sounded like a cannon going off. You know, this guy went to the hospital, right? And so all said and done, you know, we literally put the 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 uh, compressor back in, you know, our compressor in, we charged the system accordingly, and we had to put twice as much oil in the system as what originally came with the compressor. And from what I understood, it ran fine after that forever and ever. But literally, this is what happens when you get a system and you don't take into account basically the limitations of what the system can actually do. Right. Just because you have a 10 ton evaporator and a 10 ton compressor doesn't mean that, you know, you can add a 10 ton heat reclaim coil and a bunch of other stuff and try and mix and match them and get them to work because there are other things you need to take into account. But the one thing I want to bring out is never put a solenoid valve and a ball valve on either side of a component that you want to remove because if you if both of them are closed you're not going to access any refrigerant to the far side of the uh of the far side of that line they didn't take into account that they just saw that you know they opened up a valve and everything was good to go and that was the end of it so luckily the gentleman that um was with us was also dressed too heavy for the weather and his clothing and the oil probably protected him from getting serious burns but yeah, it, it could have been a whole, whole, whole lot worse than what that was. But that's that's got to be the biggest dog I've ever seen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Great story, by the way. Uh, I could have envisioned a, a film made out of that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was just. Uh, oh, and the top it off, and after I got back to the hotel and I went and washed all my clothes, somebody stole them out of the dryer. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the kind of place we were staying in. You know, that was back when people were booking stuff on Priceline.com, right? You know, back in the day, you know. But anyways, thanks, William Shatner. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Jörg, your turn now. 
Yeah, well then, um, let me talk about something where I was not on site, where I've been been asked to help. And the information was that somehow the system somehow <laughs> worked, but but it did not reach efficiency and and um, numbers were not okay and superheat control was not okay and so on. So it somehow worked, but in the end, nothing really worked as it should. And I got information about components and then uh, I checked, okay, those are 407C components. So, so I did all the calculations with 407C and, and nothing was, was fitting to anything, right? The <clears> temperatures <throat> did not fit to pressures. The superheat was, was somehow not okay. Capacities did not fit, nothing. And then I asked these guys, listen, what have you done? I mean, on site after you i mean i understand you had a service to do you repaired that system and then you recharged the system tell me exactly what you did and they explained that and it all sounded good and then i said which refrigerant have you been charging oh no and then the question from the other side came what do you mean which one are there different ones and that's when i knew okay now i have an idea of what went wrong here <laughs> but that oh, took my me some goodness. time <laughs> Oh my goodness, man. Can you imagine putting that in a report? Customer identified that there wasn't more than one refrigerant in the world. <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah, that's, that was pretty interesting. Oh my goodness. Well, at least that, yeah. Uh, that, 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 that would, as much as it would just make you shake your head, I would almost have to laugh because I wish I had been there, man, behind you and seen the look on your face when somebody said that. Yeah. John, how about you? Um, You've also yeah, been the, around. Around, yes, definitely. Um, there's probably quite a few I could I could talk about, but I'll sort of speak to a, a relevant topic of today and and my role, and that is um, a cold room slash walk-in with a a small condensed unit, and we we got a call basically, um, you know, through the service desk within Danfoss that. Uh, this uh, this system wasn't working. It wasn't it wasn't pulling down. It was a freezer room, so it should have been minus eighteen, minus twenty, that sort of area. Um, it was you know that one day of the summer when we get when it's a little bit warm, and uh, ended up <laughs> going to site. It, it was uh, basically a very small freezer room in a, in a basement somewhere, and I'm talking sort of six feet by six feet sort of you know that mm -hmm. sort of size fairly small and the first thing that i noticed was on, on the back wall of this building there was uh, probably a dozen or so condensed units um some of danfoss and some of other makes um some were aircon units and the one particularly that i was looking at was a, a danfoss condensed unit and they'd installed it i think basically on aircon brackets and there was okay probably five centimeters between the back of the unit and the wall somewhere on there where we should have sort of 180 200 um for, for airflow so there was no airflow and mm. it was one of those sites where as i said before it was thrown in from across the road no, there, wasn't, yeah. there wasn't a single pipe clip between the condensed unit and the evaporator which was in the basement so that instantly sort of pricked my ears up to say, well, OK, let's look at everything else. Um, all three rotor locks on the unit were, I would have said, maybe 50% open, 50% closed, um, which didn't help matters. Um, the compressor was rather white, 
um, which was a little bit concerning. As in white as compressors? In, as, as in white frost. Uh, ah. So they had that Christmas look going on. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was rather rather white. Um, it was the best description. So we goes down into the uh, cold room and uh, asked him to drop the fans and, and have a look. And the bulb for the expansion device wasn't on the suction. Oh, really? So can where you guess was where, it? where was it? Exactly. Yeah. Guess. Yeah. Yeah. In Hanging the, in the air is what I'm going to say. No, no. Well, where else would they put it? Would they put it on the defrost don't heaters or me, something? Don't, don't tell me liquid line. Liquid oh, line. no. Oh, no. So what so was the valve doing? 130% capacity, man. Yeah, basically, open. basically. Yeah. Which was like, uh, that's definitely not where it's supposed to be. Oh, uh, well, my goodness. That's funny because my boss and I, my boss now, but we were traveling together at the time and we went to go see one of his customers and he just was going to see these guys for the first time. He just sold them TU valves and he was super excited and they were going into like a boat type application. Mm. And so all the units, they're like a little cassette that slides in because everything on the boat is fitted to be a certain size. Right. So, yep. you know, we go walking around and, you know, the, the owners, you know, dozens and dozens of these units all there. And the owner of the company was proud because they're just getting loaded or getting ready to get wrapped up and loaded onto the truck. And we looked down and every single one of these things had a nice silver sensing bulb hanging in the air. All right. And Joel says to him, oh, man, I see, you, you know, when when they get to the site, you know, how do the guys install them to the liquid line? And the guy's like, well, no, man, those are like those are like the, the sensing bulbs. They're just sensing the air temperature and it tells the valve how much to open up. There was like dead silence in the room. Joel looks at me. <laughs> I look at him. And so basically these guys were taking like a, you know adaptive device and turn it into a giant fixed orifice right and it just almost <laughs> for some strange reason it had the right capacity to make all these units work as planned right and we're like oh my goodness man you know and it was just sheer luck that they hadn't lost every single unit they were putting out there they were raving about how great the capacity was on these things and and <laughs> i don't know what happened after that i think joel had to tell the guy look you know we're gonna have to mount that thing and maybe go with a larger one size larger orifice <laughs> or something but you can't be doing that man so because if somebody takes a picture of that and sends it in you're sunk you know yeah so, yeah exactly. you know and this is before facebook and all the other stuff today where it would have been a disaster but yeah i still remember that you know, but I guess you got to remember is that these guys were experts at assembling components into something that worked, but they're not necessarily refrigeration experts, especially on the individual components themselves, right? And I think as a, when I was doing my stint as a sales engineer, that's something I really had to consider was that your customer may not be the expert that you think they are in everything. Exactly. They're experts exactly. at taking sheet metal and assembling everything, but you know, they may not be experts in how to get this thing to work exactly as it did. And as soon as I offered help like that, and again, my boss did the same thing, you know, we actually were more successful because we were now a valued asset to our customers. So we actually allowed us to bring more value than just, hey, you know, here's my valve kind of thing. It works great. And so yeah. that was a big differentiator. Yeah, I think what one thing that I see, and I don't know whether it's particular to the UK, but you'll get a refrigeration engineer in brackets mm -hmm. but he also fixes microwaves and ovens yeah. and dishwashers and 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 mm -hmm. so it's more uh forget the phrase but you know they they work in commercial kitchens 
and fix everything in a commercial kitchen mm -hmm. and they do refrigeration. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, that can be sometimes quite quite challenging. Yeah, but they can also be a good resource if you can support them. Again, you know, we we, we a lot of times we'll deal with building building uh, what they call the maintenance people and things like that, and we'll run classes for them. And they're a very, very willing audience because they just because I mean, they're under, you know, you talk about time pressure and cost pressure. They've got everybody breathing down their neck to solve problems. And anytime you can help them, man, they're like your best friend. Then if you can provide solutions to them for sure, you know, yeah, you think you yeah. donated a kidney to these guys or something. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> it's amazing because they, they suddenly the lights just go on. They realize it. Right. And you just provide a solution to them that just, you know. Saved a, mm. saved a ton of time for them. Let's just put that way, your money or whatever it happens to be. But to me, you know, to me, this is common knowledge. And that was a mistake I had to get over is never assume that the people understand, you know, or see things the way you see it. Because you mentioned before, it all depends on what the person taught you before, what your background is, what you bring to the table. And so, you know, I'm assuming that when I'm talking to these people, they're all Jamie Kitchens out there. You know what I mean? And we're, we're just going through and hashing you know, concepts and things like that. But that was something that, uh, you know, I had to take a step back and go, okay, you know, I need to approach this differently. I need to explain this differently to people because everybody brings their own sets of tools to the table. So I need to know what he, the way that person thinks first before, yeah. you know, and that, that, that helps me out rather than just diving into all the facts and, and, you know, trying to ream them through somebody. Yeah. yeah. I think <clears throat> it's about time now, guys, this was, uh, as usual, quite interesting, quite a giving uh, chat, I'd say. I don't know if I, I'm not sure I can conclude, but if anything, it, it's about the knowledge, your knowledge, your, as uh, in uh, you who are actually working out there in the real world, so to speak. It's, um, <clears throat> somebody told me, way back when I was also doing practical work, that uh, it's always practical with a good theory, uh, meaning that while we're working on, on, on systems, et cetera, et cetera, setting up systems, it's always good to know what you actually, what you're doing, what you're working with, right? Mm -hmm. And we also need to, to, to sort of realize that things are changing whether we like it or not, but uh, we, we actually do need to keep up with uh, our knowledge about what we do, regardless of yeah, what it is we're working with. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's an exciting time because there's a lot of change and change can be challenging, but at the same time, it's also job security, it's new opportunities. You know, if you don't like, you know, your current shtick that what you're doing right now, the nice thing about our industry is you know, there's tons of knowledge available out there and there's tons of op other opportunities. You don't like working on one set of equipment. You know, there's other areas where you can go and take your experience and build upon it, you know, and, and I think in a lot of industries these days, that's becoming rare and rare. And so I don't think you'll ever be outside of a job or not have a job in this industry. I mean, no. you know, invest some time in it and I think you're going to be working for life. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, agree, mm -hmm. agree. Great. But thank you so much, guys. Um, it's been, again, interesting. 
I just said that before, but uh, yeah, thank no you so much, guys. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thank yeah. you. I'm looking okay. forward to talking to all of you again. Yes, Certainly. and hopefully we didn't steer too far off topic this time. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, no, I think it, it, it was all right. Thank you so much, guys. Cheers. Take Have care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Talk to you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Also, thank you to you, the listener, and I hope you have enjoyed the podcast as much as we did when recording it. Again, don't hesitate to send us feedback and suggestions on chillingwithjens, in one word, at danfoss.com. Thank you.